last night. Is that right? <laughs> Try to stay awake uh, this morning. Um, I'm really uh, grateful for the opportunity to be with you this morning, and I really just want to talk to you. I don't want to preach a sermon. just want to talk from the heart a little bit. I have a, a number of things that, uh, that are on my heart to share with you. I'm always asked this question, what is distinctive about the Master's College? Why are you involved? Why do you put your effort into it? Why do so many people care so deeply about the college? What makes it different? What makes it distinct? That is a constant question wherever I am. I just came back from Brazil where I was last week, and I must have been asked that question a dozen times by missionaries and by Brazilian national pastors and people who, who wanted to know about this college. They've heard about it down there. They're interested in the coming, attending school or sending their children or whatever, and they, they want to know what is distinctive. What is it about this college that sets it apart? I know you know that there are some spiritual distinctives, discipleship, accountability, uh, the Matthew 18 process of confrontation, um, a priority of worship, uh, priority of missions, ministry, uh, summer mission trips. You know all about those kinds of spiritual distinctives that are a part of our, of our college. We're serious about spiritual issues. In fact, uh, not too many years ago, Campus Life did a national survey and... Uh, we came up number one in the combination of, uh, of spiritually committed and fun, which is a nice combination if you can be spiritually committed and still have fun. That, that's great. But we've always had the reputation of being spiritually committed and being serious about the Lord Jesus Christ and taking our faith seriously, uh, taking the Word of God seriously, affirming the Word of God, and uh, that's, that's pretty solidly in place. What I want to talk to you this morning about are some issues that are really beyond that or other than that that are of great importance to me. Currently, evangelicalism as we know it, or whatever you want to call it, the Christianity that we all identify with, is in a serious identity crisis. This identity crisis began to be focused back in the 70s with the beginning of what has become widely known, of course, as the charismatic movement. The charismatic movement began to sort of get outside its historic Pentecostal confines. We've, since the 20s, had the Foursquare Church and the Assembly of God and, and a few other United Pentecostal and other smaller groups. But in the 60s, particularly in the late 60s, the charismatic movement began to really make tremendous inroads. And it began a slow process of redefining Christianity. The evangelicalism and the fundamentalism that I grew up in was basically not charismatic. It was non-mystical. It was highly objective. It was theological. It was defined as um, somewhat narrow doctrinally, not at all tolerant of liberalism. In fact, I grew up in, a, in evangelicalism and a fundamentalism that spent most of its time trying to fight liberalism. The liberals came along and said the Bible really isn't the Word of God. It, uh, it may or may not contain the Word of God. Whatever speaks to you is the Word of God. Um, it, it's the writings of man, and if you read them, you have an existential experience. It becomes to you the Word of God. Uh, seminaries went liberal. Churches went liberal. And that was the big battleground. And, and that really came into sharp focus in 1955 in New York City. Because in 1955 in New York City, Billy Graham had the first huge mega citywide crusade, and he invited all the liberals to sit on the platform. And he had this idea that they were going to reform liberalism and somehow reform the, uh, the, 
the fast-sliding liberal churches and denominations also um, had the idea, the organization, Billy Graham organization, had the idea that what we need to do is we need to win the intellectual elite, the Eastern establishment, the Ivy League uh, theologians and, uh, and all of that, and we've got to have intellectual credibility. And all of that is chronicled in the last 50 to 75 pages of the second volume of Martin Lloyd-Jones' biography by Ian Murray in a most, most important historical note. Because that was a very, very defining moment in evangelicalism because it drew a line. And evangelicals, some of them immediately said, we agree with that. We think we ought to include the liberals. Maybe we can get them saved. Maybe we can bring them back. And another group of evangelicals said, you have compromised. You've gone too far. We're drawing the line. And basically a, a kind of movement known as fundamentalism was really established. And so the battle lines were drawn in the 50s between those who felt that the liberals represented Satan and Antichrist and lies and error and heresy and that we had to take a position against that and those who wanted to accommodate that. And that was the battle that we fought. And there were people on both sides of that issue. And it was a fairly furious battle. The, the great schools, the great colleges and seminaries that belonged to Christ and took the, the side of, uh, of fundamentalism have, for the most part, maintained their identity as evangelical schools, the ones who took the compromise route have pretty well uh, moved in the drift and, and lost their moorings, as you would imagine it would be the case. The battle has changed now. The battle is really not any longer with liberalism because liberalism is dead. It's just plain dead. When I went to seminary, I studied liberal theology. I read Paul Tillich. I read... Uh, Martin Buber, I read Reinhold Niebuhr, I read all these people who were denying the Bible, denying the miracles, denying the deity of Christ, denying the resurrection, denying the substitutionary atonement of Christ, denying all of this stuff and yet maintaining that they were theologians and uh, scholars. Uh, I spent my time reading that, reading Karl Barth, Neo-Orthodoxy, learning how to define all that, how to argue and debate against all of that. And frankly, you know, I got a lot of information that's useless today because it's not an issue. Liberalism is dead. It's basically dead. But that doesn't mean we don't have an enemy. The enemies that we grew up fighting in my day, that many of your professors were trained to be able to battle, are no longer even out there. Um, most of them, frankly, have discovered the horse is dead, you might as well get off. And uh, they've just wandered away into who knows what. But there are some new enemies. And you need to understand what they are, because I believe in this particular time, we're at a crisis point when some lines are being drawn, and, and you're going to have to stand on one side of those or the other, and so is this college, and we know where we're going to stand. We're not in an identity crisis along with most of evangelicalism today. The current identi uh, identity crisis, I believe, has primarily been um, created by the fast-growing charismatic movement. By that, I don't mean that everything in that movement is bad. It isn't. I simply mean that they have created in great measure, the climate in which these problems have arisen. Now, let me just tell you what the issues are. And these are things that I'm concerned about because for whatever reason, the Lord has called me not only to pastor a church and, and to uh, be a part of a college, but he's called me to somehow confront issues, not only here but all around the world, and I find the issues basically are the same everywhere. It's a global village. It's a shrinking world. Everything gets imported and exported, and the same problems we have here are the same problems I have to address when I go to Brazil or Russia or South Africa or wherever else I might go. And here are some of the issues I want to address. You need to be able to think clearly about these. You need to be able to understand these issues. First of all, 
it, we could call we could say the issue of mysticism and Gnosticism. I don't want to just uh, snow you with uh, big words. Let me tell you what I mean. Mysticism is an old, old, old philosophical viewpoint. And what it basically says is that you come to truth intuitively. That is, you come to understand what is right and what is wrong out of your own experience, out of your own mind, out of your own reasoning, or out of your own feelings. Okay, that's mysticism. That you can, you can come to truth intuitively. You can come to truth subjectively. You can come to truth from inside. A form of mysticism is Gnosticism. Gnosticism basically comes from the, um, well, mysticism comes from the Greek word mysterion, mystery. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, to know. And Gnostics are people who have the secret knowledge. It's a form of mysticism. They have somehow attained to the secret knowledge. They've got insights nobody else has. They are in the mystical knowledge, the, the initiated people, those who have uh, ascended beyond the mundane, objective things that most of the hoi polloi, the common people, are able to discern. Mysticism and Gnosticism, listen carefully to what I'm saying, is at the heart of the charismatic movement. And if you listen and watch carefully that movement, you incessantly will be exposed to people who say, the Lord showed me this, the Lord told me this. And they will say, if you haven't had this experience or that experience or the other experience, you haven't entered into the secret knowledge. You, are, you aren't transcending. And they are, so they are always pursuing, not a theology, not an understanding of scripture, but a what? An experience. An experience that is not subject to any scrutiny, evaluation, rejection. And so, if you want, you can roll on the floor and laugh uncontrollably. And they call it the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you haven't done it, you don't have the secret knowledge. You haven't entered in. You're not a part of the spiritual elite. This is nothing but Gnosticism. This is an age-old heresy against which the Apostle Paul addressed much of his New Testament writing. Uh, they say, if you want, you can even roar like a lion. You can bark like a dog. You can speak in ecstatic speech. You can have visions and dreams. Uh, if you just hang around long enough, Jesus will talk to you. God will talk to you, give you private insight, private information, private revelation. You hear people, for example, like Benny Hinn, who's probably the, the most widely known around the world now in terms of spousing this, basically use a little phrase all the time called revelation knowledge. Revelation knowledge. Talks about it all the time. It isn't just knowledge. Knowledge isn't good enough for a Gnostic. It's got to be revelation knowledge. It's got to be some, somehow this transcendent knowledge that is just not available to everybody. And if you're not in, in one of the initiated groups, you're really not, you're really not a part of this. It is without any theological parameters. You don't have to defend it. You don't even have to define it. It is uh, mystically existential. That is to say, it is an experience of being that belongs to you. In my uh, newest book on discernment, 
called Reckless Faith, subtitled uh, When the Church Loses Its Will to Discern, I talk about the deadliness of uh, looking for truth in all the wrong places. There's a whole chapter entitled Looking for Truth in All the Wrong Places. The Lord told me this, the Lord told me that, the Lord showed me to do this, the Lord showed me to do that. People sometimes ask me, uh, does the Lord work in your life that way? My answer is no. I've never heard him speak. I wouldn't know what it felt like to be led by him. There might be circumstances that indicate to me I should do a certain thing. But frankly, I I wouldn't know if God was leading me or if he wasn't leading me until I got into something and saw what happened in the situation. Then I might see his hand in it. But the fact is, I might be seeing him overrule my own self-will as opposed to him having led me in there in the first place. And I don't have any way to know the difference. There is no subjective means by which I can be certain that God is saying anything to me. Did you hear that? There is no subjective means by which I can be certain that God is saying anything to me. There is only an objective means by which I can know whether God is speaking, and what is that? That's the Bible. You get me outside of the Bible, and I don't know that. I can't comprehend that dimension. And yet you have these supposedly initiated people in this, this mystical Gnosticism that is so rampant today who believe not only do they know what God is doing, they can see into the realm of God. Not only do they know what God is saying, not only do they know what impulses God is injecting into their life to cause them to do this and that, you will hear them say bizarre things like, God is moving in an unusual way in the city of, of Albuquerque. I don't know how they know that. Or they'll say, God is moving and a new wind of the Spirit of God is blowing across Africa. Really? I've flown over Africa. I didn't see it. I didn't feel it. What are you talking about? They'll even go beyond that. They will say, I told the devil, you go in a corner and stay there. And I told those demons to get out of that person and go to the pit. I bound Satan and I bound him. Who in the world do you think you are? You mean to tell me you're so initiated into the secret knowledge, you not only can see what God is doing, hear what God is saying, and feel God's leading, but you know what's going on in the kingdom of darkness as well? You see, this is, this is a very frightening thing. But this is at the heart and soul of this movement. Obviously, some are more extreme than others, and I don't want to say for a moment that... Uh, that all charismatics are unsaved. That is not true. Many of them know Christ. They understand the simple truth of the gospel. They understand the atonement of Christ on their behalf, and they have repented of their sin and embraced him as Savior. But what they are deeply confused about is where you go to discern the truth. And once you get outside the Bible, you can't contain the thing. Now what you've got is a a prairie fire. There's no way to contain it. And so it becomes absolutely irresponsible. And it starts defining things purely on the basis of the feeling that you get, the feeling that is induced by an experience. I was talking to a a lady who's a talk show host in this city. She's on the air every day, five days a week, and uh, she answers questions from listeners who call in a Christian radio station to tell them their spiritual, to tell her their spiritual problems, and she tells them what to do about that. And after having an hour with her on the radio, at the end of the conversation, I said, uh, we went off the air, I said, can I ask you a question? She said, sure. I said, um, how did you become a Christian? Oh, she said it was, it was cool. 
she said, um, I was at home, I was a single person doing my thing, you know, just living my life, uh, just like any single would. And one day I was in my bathroom and I got Jesus' phone number. And we've been connected ever since. I said, pardon me? You got Jesus' phone number and you've been connected ever since? I said, what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? Well, you know what it means? It means nothing. That means absolutely nothing. That doesn't tell me anything. It made me very concerned. And I said, well, um, do you understand the gospel? And she said, uh, well, what do you mean by that? Well, she said, what would you say, what would you say to someone if, uh, if they asked you how you became a Christian? And I went over a simple explanation that God is a holy God who hates sin and must punish the sinner. But out of his mercy and grace, he sent his son into the world, who was God incarnate, to die the death that sinners should die. And I went through the whole gospel step by step in about five, six minutes. And said there must be an understanding of the personal work of Jesus Christ, desire to turn from sin, accept the atonement of Jesus Christ on the sinner's behalf, and commit your life to him as Lord and uh, follow him. And her response was this, oh, come on. You don't tell everybody they got to go through all that, do you? Completely oblivious to any content with regard to the gospel. And I want you to know that, that, that contemporary evangelicalism, as it's being redefined today, is filled with this. And it's really, it really shows up in Matthew 7, doesn't it? Um, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we've done this, we've done that, we've done the other thing. He'll say, I depart from me, I never knew you. This is rampant. It is everywhere. And you need to understand that this school, this college, me and our people believe that God reveals himself objectively through the word, period. And our experiences will be real and powerful, but they will be in response to an understanding of the word, to an application of the word, or to contemplation on the word. Not to some human emotion. We are living in a time when evangelicalism is succumbing to a redefinition without theology. Now, that leads me to a second point. And I can only introduce these things. I could say a lot more. But the second thing that follows along with this is a serious issue is the issue of, we'll call it just tolerance and unity. It's a new kind of ecumenism or coming together. Since, since evangelicalism is being redefined now, and since anything goes and everybody belongs, and, and since we want everybody to sort of love each other and we all talk about the same Jesus, we've got to have unity. I mean, I hear this over and over and over everywhere I go. Unity, 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 unity. Only it's the unity of tolerance and the buzzword today is tolerant. Look, look in our culture, right? Our culture is that way. You've got to be tolerant of everybody's aberration, everybody's viewpoint. You know, you hear these people all the time say, well, I mean, hey, it's, it's my own life. I can do with it what I want. It's the way I choose. It's my own thing. And you've got to learn to tolerate it. And you have the same thing in evangelicalism. If I stand up and take issue with something, I'm looked at as some kind of a sub-Christian. 
I'll give you a lot of illustrations of this. I'll just give you one very classic illustration. When I wrote the book, The Charismatics, in 1978, Moody, Moody Bible Institute, Moody Monthly Magazine, um, said we want to syndicate that book into Moody Monthly Magazine. That is so important, we want to take a chapter a month and syndicate that thing for the better part of a year, which is very unusual for a, for a magazine to syndicate a book. But since the book was published by Zondervan and Moody, Moody wanted to, couldn't get a hold of the book, they wanted to get a hold of the material and syndicate it, so they did. They put the cover of the book on the cover of the magazine, and they ran this deal for like uh, nine months or ten months, during which they told me they increased their subscriptions 35 to 40,000. And they were willing to take a stand. Okay? A few years ago, we were on the Moody Network radio. They informed us that if I ever say anything that could be construed as negative toward charismatics, they will delete it from the broadcast. What has happened? Has Moody changed their theology? No. They haven't changed their theology at all. They have become intimidated by the cries of tolerance. And they're afraid to alienate people out there who cry tolerance. Now, let me tell you something about tolerance. If ever you hear anybody coming along and espousing a doctrine or espousing a theology or espousing a viewpoint and asking you to tolerate it, just know this. It's error. Because error always rides the back of tolerance. Because it's the only way error can survive, right? Because error can't stand scrutiny. But if somebody comes along and says, Test this, compare it to Scripture, examine it, evaluate it, hold up the Word of God and see if it isn't true, you can be sure that that person is convinced that this is really the truth. But error always rides in on the Trojan horse of tolerance. And it gets in the city and while you're admiring this Trojan horse in the middle of the night, it opens up and all the enemies come out and destroy the city. Error always pleads tolerance. Error always says, let's not divide. Doctrine divides. Let's not draw lines. Let's not get too narrow. Let's be open-minded. Let's embrace. Let's love. Let's be one. Let's be one without regard for the objective truth of Scripture. Now, in all honesty, this isn't anything new. It is nothing new. In fact, Charles Finney is the benchmark individual in American history that turned the tide away from historic Reformed theology to Pelagian-Arminian mysticism in the Second Awakening, what's called the Second Great Awakening in Finney, 1850. Since that time, there have been the roots of this mysticism, this, this idea that we all just kind of get together, and, and no less than D.L. Moody himself said this. I quote, It makes no difference how you get a man to God Provided you get him there. My theology? I wasn't aware I had any. D.L. Moody. Where did he get that? He wasn't aware he had a theology? He's going to minister without a theology? I just want you to know you can go way back and find the roots of this stuff in, in, in American evangelistic history. But it's now reached monumental proportions. Where the, the cry out there is to be tolerant and be tolerant and be tolerant. Many of you are going to come from churches like that. Where they just want to, they just want to accept everything. Every movement, every perspective, you know, as long as you talk about Christ and God and the Bible and 
And the terms are familiar. We're supposed to be tolerant. We're supposed to be loving. And they say doctrine divides, doctrine divides, doctrine divides. And it's true. But they forget that Jesus said he came to bring a sword, right? To cut between a father and a son and a mother and a daughter and to split families right down the middle between those who accept the truth and those who don't. Doctrine does divide. Fortunately, it divides in the way God intended it to divide. So we've got this issue of tolerance. And the, the big word today is we've got to tolerate. Take promise keepers. Perfect illustration. The sixth promise that you make at promise keepers, which is the fastest growing movement in the history of Christianity, numbers wise. I don't know of any movement in history, and I've talked to others who are into the historical side of this, where you can see anything that reaches the proportion of nearly a million men in three years. It's unbelievable. Among the promises these men make, the sixth one is they will do everything they can to break down and cross all denominational lines. Now, let me remind you that all of the powers behind promise keepers are in the vineyard. Randy Phillips, the president, James Ryle, who was a board member and really the, the driving force, and Bill McCartney are all out of the Boulder Vineyard. And James Ryle, who is the, uh, the pastor of that vineyard, had a vision some years ago of a blue guitar, just to tell you how he thinks. He had a vision of a blue guitar. He has visions all the time. And his visions are the revelation knowledge, the secret knowledge, the Gnostic knowledge, that transcends scripture that makes him unaccountable to have to abide by the word of God. So in this thing, he saw a blue guitar in the sky and uh, God told him this is the baptism of the blue guitar, which he put on a musician to evangelize the world. And God showed him that the first musician that God gave it to was Elvis. And God gave this to Elvis to evangelize the world and Elvis blew it. So he took it away and gave it to the Beatles. And then he took it away from the Beatles and now he's looking for somebody else to give it to not only is this bizarre, but it's not true. God didn't tell him that. He didn't get that revelation. But you have that kind of influence behind it. So when you have that kind of influence in a movement, obviously, they don't want strong doctrinal scrutiny. So there's an effort to, to make sure we don't make any distinctions. When you break down denominational distinctions, you have to understand this. Denominations exist because differences in doctrine exist. They'd, there are people who've come to conclusions about what the scriptures teach. And when I asked um, the leader of the movement, who are you really trying to wrap up in this thing when you say, let's break down denominational barriers? Who is your real target? His answer was Roman Catholics. And I said, you mean to tell me that you want to embrace Roman Catholics as brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes. Now you're talking about something more than denomination. You're talking about a false religion. You're talking about a false religion. And that leads me to the next thought that um, the issue now where you have this tolerance, tolerance, tolerance is to set all doctrine aside, which is deadly. I mean, all through the New Testament you hear... The Holy Spirit telling us to hold fast to sound doctrine. But in this movement of ecumenism, its, it's, it's ultimate end is to embrace Roman Catholicism. As one on Trinity broadcast said, let's go home to Rome. I've been involved in this, as I told you, when I was down in Florida with R.C. Sproul and, and uh, some others uh, confronting uh, 
Colson and Packer in a very interesting meeting down there dealing with this issue. There is a movement now toward, let me see if I can give it to you sort of in a historical sense, there's a movement toward classic Christianity. What is that? That's pre-Reformation Christianity. Let's just forget the Reformation. Before the Reformation, we were all one, right? There was just the, the one Christian church, they say. And then the Reformation came along, and the Roman Catholic system didn't like the Reformation, so they anathematized or damned all the Reformers. The issue of the Reformation was simply this, salvation by grace through faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church said, that's not the way it is. We believe salvation is by grace through faith alone, don't we? Roman Catholicism doesn't believe that. They believe salvation is by grace through faith plus human works. That is a damnable heresy. That's why there was a Reformation. That's why for 450 years, many people have given their life and are still giving their lives for that truth. And many of them have been killed by the Catholic system itself. Well, we could say a lot about the Roman Catholic system. Just know this. If you go anywhere in the world but the United States, you can go to Italy, you can go to Latin America, go anywhere, you will see really is, very clearly, you will see that it is the unqualified worship of Mary. That's what it is. Jesus is incidental. In America, it's covered up a little bit because there's so much Protestantism here they don't want to look too different. But there was a Reformation for a reason. But there's a new movement now within evangelical Christianity and it's occurring at the grassroots level say in a promise keeper's environment at the charismatic level as they throw their arms around Roman Catholics all the time and affirm Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox and all that. It's also happening at an intellectual level with people who are now saying intellectually, these are some of the intellectual elite in the quote-unquote evangelical movement who want to go back and embrace pre-Reformation Christianity. One of the leading lights in this is, an, is a very interesting man by the name of Thomas Oden. Thomas Oden is a, is a scholar, by academic definitions, of the highest rank, teaches at Drew University, which is a, a Arminian a Methodist, but rank liberal dead place, you know, where God never goes and neither does anybody who knows him. But Drew University is a, is a rock pile. I mean, there's no life there. It's, it's a liberal place. Thomas Oden is there. He's teaching liberal theology in a liberal context. He comes to himself one day and realizes the horse is dead or nearly dead. So I got to get off this deal because liberalism is history. It didn't work. It's gone. It's antiquated. And so he makes a move and he makes a move toward classic Christianity. And he writes a book called The Requiem, which I just read. It's a requiem for liberal theology in which he's pleading with his colleagues to come over to classic Christianity. What he does is jump from liberalism past, he literally hurdles the Reformation into pre-Reformation Catholicism. And that's the new way. And he's maybe an intellectual leader, along with others like George Marsden and Mark Knoll who are espousing the same thing. So you have a movement toward Catholicism at the grassroots level, at the charismatic level, you have a movement toward Catholicism at the intellectual elite level that is extremely threatening. And I would venture to say that over the next few years, the line that once was drawn between fundamentalism and liberalism is going to be drawn between evangelicalism and Catholicism, and you're not going to be able to ride that fence. You're going to have to go on one side or the other. If you understand the Roman Catholic system, you understand that there had to be a reformation because it's a corrupt system. It is the worship of Mary. With all those missionaries that, down in Brazil that I was with in the last couple of weeks, 
I can tell you they have spent their life trying to reach people for Christ who are neck deep in Roman Catholicism and as lost as an aboriginal in the Amazon jungle in a canoe who's worshipping a stick. You have to understand that. And evangelicalism today just wants to throw its arms as if around this whole system as if there was complete agreement. I, I got this on my fax. Billy Graham's office sent it to me. I thought I'd read it to you. This is quoting Billy Graham. I join with millions of other Americans in once again welcoming Pope John Paul II to the United States. He is unquestionably the most courageous and influential voice for morality and social justice in the world today. And his commitment to peace and lasting spiritual values are an example to us all. Now let me ask you a question. Can a man who is not a Christian make a commitment to lasting spiritual values? Can a man who represents an apostate evil system contribute to lasting spiritual values? The answer is no. He goes on, it has been my privilege to know the Pope for many years and I have always been grateful for his personal warmth and friendship in a few little details. And in this last paragraph, I call upon all Christians in America, whatever their denominational background, there's more of that same stuff. Just forget your doctrine, forget your theology, to pray for Pope John Paul II during his mission in our country. Our nation's preoccupation with materialistic values are escalating violence and our spiraling social problems can only be solved by turning to God in repentance and faith. Is that the problem with America? Is that what's wrong with us? We have materialistic values, escalating violence and spiraling social problems. What is the problem with this country? Sin. Why didn't he say that? It's not PC, right? Not politically correct, I guess. Then this final statement. Let us pray that God will use the visit of the Pope to call our nation to faith in Christ. I almost fell off my chair when I read that. The Pope couldn't call a nation to faith in Christ because he doesn't know Christ. He can't and be in that system that believes salvation is a function of human works. What should have been said was, watch out for the Pope, he's a false prophet who leads an apostate system that teaches damnable heresies and rejects the doctrine of grace. It also rejects the doctrine of Scripture because they believe that there is revelation beyond Scripture. Why would he say that? Well, such a good, such a noble man who's had such a great impact through the years. Why would he say that? He's caught up in the same stuff and unwilling to make some clear distinctions. Let me share just two other things with you, and then I'll let you go, that concern me, issues you need to be thinking about. And if I haven't written on those, these issues, I will. I don't know how to frame this, but I think you'll get this. There is developing in evangelicalism what I choose to call a virtual post-millennialism. Now, when I say the word virtual, you all know we're in cyberspace, right? So there is, there is emerging a virtual post-millennialism. I'm not hearing classic post-millennialists being thrown kudos. I'm not hearing, I'm not hearing people uh, reading um, classic post-millennialism. You know what post-millennialism is? It says that the world uh, is going to go along and go along and go along. Finally, at the end, it's going to get all better. 
The church is going to fix it, and at the end of the church, when the church fixes it, the church by its own power and influence will bring in the thousand-year kingdom at the end of which Christ returns. We are pre-millennial. We think the world's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to fix it and, and bring the kingdom. That's not popular. The egotism of even evangelicalism, the egotism of evangelicalism today is a virtual post-millennialism without saying it. What they're saying is this. We're taking over the kingdoms of darkness. We're doing spiritual warfare with the territorial demons. We're going to march on Washington. We're going to change the laws. We're going to have a, an effect on this nation. We're going to bring about social justice. We're going to move in this nation. It is virtual post-millennialism. It is, a, it is a rampant kind of egotism that says, get this, the world fell, humanity fell in Genesis 3, and since the fall it's been getting worse and worse and worse and worse all through human history, but we are going to fix it so Jesus can come back and have a nice place. Come on. We don't believe that, and no Christians have ever believed that. The only one who can fix it is who? Is Jesus. That's why we're premillennialists. He's got to come back and fix it. Or it won't get fixed. It is ludicrous to drive all this energy and all this time and all this effort into some misconceived idea that we can fix the world. Pat Robertson said when he was running for president, if I become elected president of the United States, we will be well on our way to offering the world to Christ. Boy, that's a small case of megalomania, isn't it? There's a few other countries left, Pat. Even if you did get America. This is virtual post-millennialism. The idea, and you know what it does? It just takes our hope and trashes it. And now Christians don't live in the glorious anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ to take this world and cleanse this world and establish his kingdom. That's not a topic of interest. That's not up for discussion. We don't want, we're going to do it, Lord, just hang loose up there, we'll get this baby fixed, and when you get back, it'll be real nice for you. That's ludicrous. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. We're not going to fix it socially. All this stuff that Billy Graham says in there about, you know, solving our social problems. Who is he kidding? You can't solve social problems. We've never been able to solve them yet. Who do we think we are all of a sudden? We who run around loose without any theology are going to fix the world. Well, more could be said about that. Just one last point. All of that is bad enough. But here's the worst thing. You thought that was bad, and it was bad. Here's the worst thing. The worst thing is that evangelicalism has moved its focus from God to man. That's the worst thing of all. And I couldn't resist making some comments on this, brief ones, because you need to go. Let me tell you something. Every Christian in the world is starving for something, you included, and me. We're starving for something, and I think that the sad part of it is we don't know what we're starving for. But we're starving for it. You know what you're starving for? What I'm starving for, we're starving for the real cure for our temptations. I don't like my sins. I'm sick of being tempted 
in the same way, with the same temptation, over and over and over again for well nigh these many years. I'm sick of my failures. I'm sick of battling my fallen flesh. I'm sick of battling the lust of the eyes, the lust of the, the flesh and the pride of life. I'm sick of having to do this constantly. And so are you. And you're starving for something. If you're a Christian, you're hungry for something. You're looking for something. Because you have that same weariness. And my job as a preacher, as a pastor, is not to give you a pep talk. I can't crank you up enough to keep you going. It's not to give you a psychological self-analysis so you can get in touch with your navel and figure yourself out. My job is not to provide you some fun experiences when you come to hear me, or some emotional stimulation, or technique to help you sort of get over your hurts and jump your hurdles and overcome your weaknesses. I just have one job. My job is to bring you what you're starving for. That's my job. To bring you what you're really starving for. And the problem is, the sad problem in evangelicalism is most people don't even know what that is. They think they're starving for better self-esteem. Can you imagine that? Man who is so proud he ought to go to hell for it. Uh, so proud he ought to go to hell for it and will. He's not converted. He needs self-esteem? Who is he kidding? Or you think it, uh, you just need uh, more confidence? That's what you're starving for? Or maybe uh, better friends or better circumstances? Uh, or better insights into your own Mind, soul, or better ability to analyze circumstances and see what's coming. No. No, what you're starving for is very simple. You're starving for a comprehension of God. That's what you're starving for. You see, the majesty of God is a cure for everything. You just don't know it. Listen to this. Cotton Mather, one of the Puritans, American Puritans, wrote this. The great design and intention of the office of a Christian preacher is to restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. To restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. My job is to get your eyes off of you completely. Let me tell you something. If a preacher focuses on you, even with good intent, here's a little spiritual deal to do this, here's a little gimmick for this, here's a little path for this, here's a little formula for this, here's how to understand yourself, and here's how to kind of look in there and see. That, in the end, though it's well-intentioned, in the final analysis, is counterproductive because it's putting your focus where? On you. The old hymn writer said it when he said, lost in wonder, love, and praise. That's the key. As the deer pants after the water brook, Psalm 42 says, So pants my soul after thee, O God. The psalmist knew what he needed. The psalmist knew what he was thirsty for. The psalmist knew what he was hungry for. He was hungry for God. He was thirsty for God, for the majesty of God, for the glory of God, for the exaltation of God. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But listen to Psalm 63. O God, thou art my God. I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee. He knew what he needed. You don't need more about you. You don't need more understanding about you, more psychology about you. You need God. That's why Peter told preachers this, if any man speaks, let him speak the oracles of God. 
First Peter 4. Let me go to talk, talk about God. Preaching is not to be man-centered, but it is today. Seeker-sensitive, man-centered, entertain them, make them feel good, bump them up the comfort ladder a little bit. Preaching is to be God-centered. And listen, no one is a true preacher who is not a theologian. We don't need entertainers in the pulpit. We need theologians there. Of Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer and theologian Samuel Johnson once said, Whatever he took in his hand was converted into theology. What a noble commendation. Today we would have to say about most preachers, whatever he took in his hand was turned to psychology. Now you say, well, why should we preach the majesty of God? Why preach the glory of God? Simply because holiness is nothing more than a God-centered life. That's a very important statement. Holiness is nothing more than a God-centered life. Let me put it to you as simply as I can. If God is more important to you than anything else, you won't sin. I'll draw you a little paradigm, a little scenario. God says, obey me and I promise to bless you. Is that fair? Is that biblically true? Right. Obey me and I promise to bless you and reward you and enrich you. Sin says, do this and you'll feel good. You'll be fulfilled. You'll like it. It'll gratify you. So God makes a promise. And sin makes a promise. And you want to know something? You make a choice. And when you choose the promises of sin, it's because you don't believe the promises of God are greater. Is that not true? So the whole issue in holiness is what do you prize most? If you prize God most, then you'll prize sin least. And so you'll take the promises of God you see, the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise in the heart of one who really believes God. So that's why we call it the shield of faith. If you really believe God, it will quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. You're not going to sin if you believe the promise of God. You see, we sin because, because sin holds out some promise of happiness, some promise of a thrill, some promise of fulfillment or excitement. Sin holds that out. And that promise enslaves us until we believe, like the psalmist, that God is to be more desired than life itself. The psalmist said in Psalm 63:3, Thy loving kindness is better than life. You see, what you need is God. You need to see the exalted, glorious majesty of God. You don't need you, you need Him. And as the preacher preaches the glory and the majesty and the wonder and the beauty of God, you are elevated to understand His worth, you are elevated to believe His promises, and consequently, you are elevated to holiness. So the battle is simply this. Over here, you have all that God promises in Jesus, and over here, you have all that sin promises without Him. If God is most prized, you'll walk the path of holiness. So the most powerful motive to holiness is not love, in, in a simple sense. It's not fear. It's not either of those things. The most powerful motive to holiness, the thing that really drives it, is prizing God. Prizing Him above everything. And what ought to be going on in pulpits and what ought to be going on in schools and colleges and everywhere that 
that believers congregate is they ought to be looking at God and focusing on God and his word and the clear, objective revelation that God has made of himself in this book so that they can prize God most. And when they prize God most, they serve him best. The shield of faith is in place and the promises of sin mean nothing. And then God is most glorified when we are most satisfied with him. In my mind, this is the biggest problem. I've given you a bunch of them. But this is the biggie. We got an evangelicalism that's looking everywhere but at him. And so you know what? It's full of sin. It's full of immorality. It's full of pride. It's full of all kinds of garbage because it isn't God-centered. Well, when we sum it all up, that the Master's College is going to take its place standing with those who are on the side of Scripture and on the side of God and on the side of Christ. And we're not going to get sucked into all of these other devastating things. This is where we stand. This is where you need to stand with us. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you've given us this time to worship you and praise you. And Father, I would ask that you would help us to look to you. We've sung about your greatness this morning in, in two or three songs. How great you are. How great you are. Oh Lord, may we see that greatness. May we live in the light of that greatness. And may we be lifted to believe your promises because we prize you most. Sin has no power over us. Glorify yourself through us and before us. And we thank you for such a privilege of belonging to you as is ours in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.